Exodus 17, verses 8 to 16. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone, put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side and one on the other side, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered, and make sure that Joshua hears it, because it will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, Because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Well, if you're anything like me, uh, a week is a long time. And uh, last Sunday uh, being Easter Sunday, celebrating Jesus' resurrection, uh, we weren't looking at Exodus together. So it's been at least a week and a bit since you were in Exodus. And maybe you're new here to the church at Emmanuel. And if you are, we're delighted that you're with us. And it's just sometimes worth remembering uh, where we've come from. And uh, as we heard in the reading, uh, we're in Exodus chapter 17, and the book of Exodus as a whole is all about God teaching his people who he is. And God does that by rescuing them from Egypt and bringing them out from slavery there. He does that by bringing them over that the Red Sea, and there's that astonishing amazing miracle and and demonstration of the power of God in parting the waters there and the Israelites are carried over and the Egyptians who are pursuing them are killed and dealt with in that sense. And then you have the, the heights of the celebration that follows. And then after those spiritual highs of what follows the parting of the Red Sea and the rescue there, we have a gap before the physical heights of Mount Sinai. And that's the section we're in now between those two big events. And what's going on here is that God, in a number of different situations, is teaching and training his people about living for him. One of the things we said about the whole of the wilderness experience of the Israelites is it's the way God prepares them and trains them to live for him as they prepare to go towards and enter the promised land. So as God does that, he shows more of his character. He trains their hearts. And to this point, we have seen three different scenes after that spiritual high of the celebration after passing the Red Sea. We have been through the bitter water of Marah. We've then been through the crisis of a lack of food, where the Lord provided there in the desert of Sin the quail, and then the manna. And then two weeks ago, we were at Rephidim, where there was no water. And the the Lord God miraculously provided water from the rock there. 
And there's been a pattern in each of those situations, those last three, of a challenging situation to which the people of God need to respond. But the the kind of challenge has been a challenge of lack. That's led to a heart challenge of how they might respond to what they lack. The other pattern that's been consistent is that each time the Lord's people have responded badly to that challenge. They have doubted, they have grumbled. But the Lord God... The God of heaven, the one true and living God, has shown grace to grumblers. But this week, and here we step into the second half of Exodus 17, there is a new kind of challenge. And the challenge is not to do with the lack of something and how they'll respond to that as the Lord's people. The challenge is to do with an external attack that comes upon the people of God. So that's the difference, the last three, because the physical danger from an enemy. But the other really interesting thing in Exodus 17, second half of the chapter, is that the people do not respond as you would expect. Because having seen them respond to all those challenges with, well, a a, a bad response in that sense, what do we see in the second half of Exodus 17? We see God's people responding well to a challenge. We see them responding positively. That's unexpected, but their response is overwhelmingly positive in terms of what they do here. Now, just before we launch into this passage, can I just point out that reminds us of two key things. The first thing it reminds us of is that in noticing what's happened over the last few different scenes and events, we have seen that the challenges that God's people face are varied. They're not always the same. There are many kinds of trials and many kinds of struggles that come upon the people of God. Sometimes they're internal, and that's what we've seen the last three weeks. Sometimes they're external, that's what we're going to see this week. And not only that, that challenges can come in different kinds of ways. And so we need to be reminded that there are a variety of challenges in the Christian life. There are a variety of different trials. The situations we face will not always be the same. On one level, I find that very hopeful, hopeful, don't you? Because sometimes when we face the same challenge again and again, we can wonder, Lord, is it that I'm just not responding rightly to this? But that's not always the case. Also, it reminds us that we need to be guarding every direction of our lives spiritually in that sense. Just because we're facing a challenge in one area of our lives spiritually doesn't mean that a challenge, the next challenge is going to come from that direction. We need to guard every flank, we might say. We need to guard every direction. The challenges are varied. And then the second big thing to point out before we get into the passage is God's people don't always fail. If you're a Christian this morning, do not think that you must fail when you face a spiritual challenge. It's not inevitable. We might expect, having seen them three times get things wrong, with the fourth response, to get it wrong again, but they don't. Brothers and sisters, you do not always have to fail in a trial. The Spirit helps you. God lives in you. It is not inevitable. Challenges are varied. God's people don't always fail. So, What do we see in this short passage? Well, in this short passage, the Amalekites come and attack God's people. Who are the Amalekites? Well, the Amalekites are a nomadic tribe. 
and they are the descendants of Esau. That's who they are. Uh, So why do they attack the Israelites here? Well, we're not exactly sure in Exodus 17. Perhaps it's the threat of a huge people group who are impinging upon the area in which they have been living. As they move around, they would have still had an area they moved in. So maybe that was the issue. Maybe they just want the, the, the wonderful waters of Rephidim. Remember the great flood that comes out from the rock, and that's a valuable thing in the desert? Maybe they just want that. Or maybe, maybe they're just unkind. But that's what they do. That's what they do. That's why they do it, sorry. And what do they do? Well, they come and they attack the people of God. They're the Amalekites. They come and attack. And although Exodus 17 doesn't tell us a lot of the detail of the attack, if you keep your hand in Exodus 17 and jump forward to Deuteronomy 25, and if you haven't got a Bible, I'll read it to you. Deuteronomy 25 and verses 17 and 18, we read these words. The Lord God says, and this is 40 years later, looking back on what happened, we get more detail because we read, remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt, when you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. So it's interesting, the detail, isn't it, there? Not only do they attack, the kind of attack is that they come when the people of God are weary, they come and they attack those who are weakest, those who are lagging behind. So they are a devious kind of foe. They're devious. And we did get a key detail to answer the question of why they attacked there in Deuteronomy 25. End of verse 18. They had no fear of God. So, that's what the Israelites face. How do we learn from this passage? Because we don't face the enemies of tribes of people like the Israelites did in the wilderness. But the Christian still has enemies. And the Bible tells us our enemies are sin, the flesh, and the devil. Those are the great foes of every believer. And when they come and attack, how does Satan attack us through sin upon our flesh, our human nature in that sense, our sinful nature, sorry? Well, he comes and attacks us when we're weary. He comes and attacks us at our weakest points. And he doesn't just do that for us personally. He does it for us collectively as a people of God sometimes. He attacks us in our place of greatest weakness as churches. And why does he attack Well, the devil attacks because he does not fear God. The devil attacks because he wants to destroy the people of God. And he wants to destroy us personally and collectively. The devil is opposed to every Christian. Why? Because God is glorified in salvation. And so, if he can unsettle, knock to one side, put off guard difficulty for any believer, he will, because it glorifies God that we are saved and we go on with the Lord. But what is more is he wants to attack the church collectively, the people of God together. Why? Because God is glorified in his church as the wisdom of God is displayed to the world. Isn't that what we learned as we went through Ephesians together? Ephesians chapter 3, the wisdom of God is displayed in the church, is not 
So the devil is opposed to the people of God personally and collectively. And so friends, as we step into this passage, as we see how Israel respond, we are going to learn how we can respond to to spiritual attacks. They faced a physical attack of the Amalekites, but as we look at this passage and we look at other passages in Scripture, we're going to learn about how we can respond when our enemies, sin, the flesh, and the devil, attack us. And we're going to see three things together. And the first is this, that we need to suit up. We need to suit up. The first thing we learn is that we are called to fight against our enemies. Where do we see that? Well, if you look down in Exodus 17 at verses 8 and 9, we read that the Amalekites come and attack the Israelites. And how do the Israelites respond? Well, verse 9 tells us that Moses makes a clear plan. Joshua, well, that's the first reference to Joshua. He will become the leader of the people of God when Moses dies. But Joshua will go as a younger man and will choose men to fight to defend the people. Moses will go and stand on top of a hill with the staff of God in his hands. Now notice there that the response of the people of God to the attack of the enemy is not passive. It is an active response. They take action when there is danger to defend themselves. And notice that both Moses, Aaron, Hur, Joshua, and the fighting men all acted and they suit up when there is a threat. They respond to the danger. And friends, the key point that we're seeing here is that we are called to be active in that spiritual battle that is a Christian life. Now, God will do it, <laughs> won't he? God will fight for us, and we're going to see that as we come to this passage. But God calls you to fight as well as a Christian in that spiritual battle. Not because he needs your help and he can't do it without you, but because that is his way and his call for you as a believer. Now this principle is not just in Exodus 17, it's right through the New Testament. Here's four references. You won't have time to turn to them, but just hear how the New Testament calls you as a Christian to fight in that battle. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4 says, The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. 1 Timothy 1 verse 18, Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, my son, I am giving you this command so that you may fight the battle well. 1 Timothy 6, same book and verse 12, Paul's closing words to Timothy in that book, Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life. And then Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 11, as we look through the armor of God, what was the first thing that was said? Put on the full armor of God. Now notice what Ephesians 6 says, friends. It does not say admire the armor. It doesn't say hang it up in a cabinet and polish it and just look at it. It doesn't say Write a book about the armor of God and you are contending in the spiritual life. It does not even say, listen to a podcast just about the armor of God. What does it say? It says, put it on. Friends, the Christian life is not passive. It is one of active engagement with our spiritual foes. And God calls you 
to that. Now, there are a great many ways in which we engage in that spiritual activity of contending against our foes. We can engage in a spiritual kind of threat scanning, being aware of the dangers spiritually in our lives. We can engage in spiritual weightlifting so that our, our spiritual muscles are strengthened so we can respond well because we've thought about truth and God's word and we've filled our hearts with the truth of scripture. We can engage in, in growing our, our dependency upon the Lord as we pray. We need to feed upon the word of God so that it fills our hearts. We need to go into the gardens of our souls and weed sin from our hearts. We need to Go through that recovery process of confession and repentance before the Lord. And there are times when we need the rest that comes from being with the people of God when the battle is hard. There are a great many ways in which we engage in this spiritual battle. And as you hear this, friends, please do not think that means that we need to live our lives constantly in a state of high alert. (laughs) Because that's exhausting, isn't it? (laughs) You know what that's like if that's happening in the workplace or or somewhere else in your life and you've got to be alert to things. That's not this high level of alertness that means that you can never just breathe. Praise God, there are times like Elam. And sometimes we need to spend a good time, period of time in Elam. It would be exhausting if not. But it does mean, friends that we need to have that spiritual alertness and readiness that we are prepared to fight spiritually when the challenges come. I have a friend uh, who, when I was facing multiple pressures in my life, he commented that it could be a spiritual attack. And it made me think, oh, hang on, what do you mean? But it was helpful to me because what he was pointing out was, Matthew, you need to be aware There are dangers. You have a great enemy, the devil. He uses sin. He wants to try and push you away from the Lord. And so that sin will work on your human nature to try and distract you from serving God and instead turn into sin. So friends, do you know your enemy? And even more importantly, do you know how your enemy attacks you? Can you this morning name your sin weaknesses? The areas in your life where you are particularly vulnerable to spiritual attack. Is it laziness? Is it discontentment? Is it a desire to control? Is it a hunger for success? Is it perhaps spiritual passivity in the Christian life and being lukewarm? What is it? Do you know what they are? If we think more generally, there are two big sin weaknesses we need to watch out for today. The devil is particularly adept at using these. The first is a desire to be accepted by the world at any cost. The desire to fit in and be liked, and Satan loves to use this upon Christians. And too often we are not prepared to be shamed by the world for the sake of Christ. Because to be not ashamed of the gospel means we have to be prepared to be shamed by the world at times. Do you see that, friends? So acceptance by the world is a big danger. The the other big danger is, is worldliness. 
And yes, there's a kind of worldliness of action, but I'm particularly thinking of a worldliness of heart attitude and values, where we adopt the values and priorities of our worlds. And we see that in our language. We see that in the kinds of arguments we make in our discussions together. Be discerning, friends, because some of the most prized values of our culture are not biblical. Take every thought captive to Christ. Do not absorb the values of our world. Instead, build your life on the word of God and nothing else. May God's word shape you and form you and be everything that matters to you because the Lord is everything that matters to you. John Owen famously said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Don't be content just to minimize sin or to manage sin or to just control sin. May that never be, friends. Be prepared to go to war against your sin wherever you find it. We need to suit up. Now, secondly, let's come to the second thing, which is uh, that we need to team up. And here we see that we are called to help one another in the battle. Because the response to the attack of the Amalekites required teamwork from the people of God. And we see that in a number of ways. We see Moses telling Joshua to go and lead in battle the fighting men. And then we see Moses. He doesn't just leave it. What does he do? Well, he goes to the top of the hill with a staff of God in his hands. But he doesn't go alone. Did you notice that little detail? Uh, there, uh, at the end of verse 10, that Aaron and Hur went up the top of the hill with Moses. It's really interesting, isn't it? Why did they go? Could it be that, that Moses anticipated his own weakness in seeking to hold the staff up? I certainly would identify with him there. I challenge you to try and hold your hands up above your body for more than, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes, and you'll find it very, very difficult. And Moses going to do that for the whole day. Maybe it was that. Maybe they could see that that is what Moses was going to do, and he was going to need some help. (laughs) And so they looked on and said, we're going to go with you, Moses, because this is a good plan, but you might need some support. We don't know exactly why, but we do know that when it all happened, he did need the help. (laughs) Because as the battle was going on below, Moses holds this staff of God up, and it meant that whenever the staff was lifted, Israel were winning, and whenever it was lowered, the Amalekites were winning. We'll come, it's really, the staff's really interesting. We're going to come to that in the third point. But here as we see this principle of helping one another and teaming up and working together as we face those challenges, we see that Moses needed help in the battle because in trying to hold it up, he couldn't. So they got a stone and they put it under him to give him a seat. And not only that, they came on each side of him and held up his hands so that they did. The staff was upright, or upward, I should say. And that lovely way of expressing it, end of verse 12. (laughs) What did it mean? So that his hands remained steady till sunset. What a great picture of God's people working together. Steady hands till sunset. So the Israelites win. Joshua overcomes the Amalekites with the sword. That's Exodus 17. What does it mean for us today? Well, it means this, friends. That there are some spiritual battles we need to fight alone but those are rare. And in general, 
the Bible's teaching is really clear that we should help each other in the battle. Again, let's just hear a number of New Testament verses that teach this. Let's turn to them, just hear them, and if you want to write the reference down to look at it further, that's fine. So Galatians 6, verses 1 and 2, speaking of this spiritual battle and helping each other, says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch out for yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you fulfill the law of Christ. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 15 says, See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God, and that no bitter root comes up, grows up, that causes trouble and defile many. Or James chapter 5 and verse 19, where we read, My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, then someone should bring that person back. James chapter 5 verse 19. My friends, this doesn't mean, we're really clear about this, it doesn't mean that I need to share everything with everyone. I get to choose who, I get to choose how, I get to choose when, and sometimes it's right to choose if. But it does mean that the general pattern of the New Testament is that we do not fight alone. Exodus 17 and all those verses. Two implications that flow from that, that we don't fight alone. First is, we must be willing to ask for help. Now that's hard. Because the first thing that takes is humility. The next thing it takes is maturity. The thing that flows from it is vulnerability. The thing that we have to do is to trust others as we do it. And we trust God as well, that they're going to keep confidences. But we need to be willing to ask for help. And in asking for help, we glorify God. Because we confess our inability, and therefore by contrast, what does that do? That brings God glory. Because his greatness is contrasted with our weakness. And as we, make, we, as we lean into and we benefit from the means which God has given to help us to go in the Christian life, that glorifies him because we're using what he has given to us to help us. And that's one another in one sense. So it glorifies God, but we need to be willing to ask. But we also, and the other side of it is that we need to be willing to help. Not pushing in. Having an awareness that sometimes others might be already involved or others might be asked instead of you. But the call here is to a stance of willingness to help one another rather than a heart attitude that says, that's not my problem, somebody else can help. But if we are called on to help, we must be so careful that we never gossip and that we are totally trustworthy in keeping confidences. And as we do that, that glorifies God because as we help each other, what do we do? We show God's wisdom in living out that design dependency in the church. God has made us to need one another. Just think of all those verses in the scriptures that speak of the church in a connected way. The church is a body. (laughs) And our bodies have different parts that need one another. The church is a building. And you cannot build a building with a brick. 
You need many bits to bring it together. So friends, we have to team up. We have to suit up. Be willing to ask. Be willing to help. But then thirdly, we need to look up. We need to suit up, we need to team up, and we need to look up. And here we come to what we might ask is, or we might say, is the key to winning the battle spiritually. Now, what is it? Well, it's not ultimately our willingness to fight, is it? Because the Israelites, we know, faced other challenges where they could do nothing and God did it. He rescued them. Think of the Red Sea. They're there. They're helpless. What are we going to do? The Egyptians behind us. God parts the sea. They walk across. They're rescued. So it's not their willingness, ultimately, which is the key to winning the battle, and nor is it their teamwork that is the key, because if you know anything of the history of the Israelites, you'll know there are times when they don't get on, they don't work together, and the Lord still rescues. So what is it? Well, many things are important, but one thing is necessary. It's that God is with them and fighting for them. And that's what's going on here with the staff, because the staff of God is lifted up to demonstrate trust and active trust and confidence in God's presence and God's power. So so in that way, the staff isn't merely just a nice object, like a colourful flag, because if it is, it's just a powerless act. It might be a symbol, but it can't do anything. But it's not merely a nice object, is it? Because what staff is this? This is the very same staff that God told Moses to use to initiate so many of the miracles he worked in Egypt. It's the same staff that the Lord told him to hold out. And the waters parted. So this staff means everything. Because this staff symbolizes the power and might of the living God. And that's why it matters here. And it reminds Israel that having God with you and for you is worth more than a million of the best fighting men. Because he's the key. And lifting it up points to this active choice to trust God's presence and God's power. Because as they lift it, as Moses lifts it, he is declaring, and the people, the people looking as well, what is he seeing? He's saying, he is my hope. The Lord is my hope. The Lord fights for us. The Lord is with us, and we trust him. And so that, I think, is why, to teach that principle so that they might learn that and we might learn that, in this situation... The battle swings between the two different forces according to whether the staff is up or down. It's to teach that principle to us. That having God fighting for you determines the ebb and flow of the battle in that sense. And then they have victory. God grants them great victory in verse 13. And then there are three things they have to do in response to the victory in verses 14 to 16. They're told to write it down so they never forget what God has done. They're told, they're told to tell Joshua so that Joshua, when he steps up to lead in the future, will never forget what God did on this day. And then thirdly, Moses builds an altar. 
And what's the altar all about? Well, the altar declares that God did this because the altar in the Old Testament speaks of God's activity. So it says God is doing something. God did something here that was significant and big and and, and important. And he builds an altar. And what is it called? The Lord is my banner. Jehovah Nisi. The key to winning the battle is God with you and God fighting for you. And they build this altar and they call it, the Lord is my banner. Why? To remind them of who God is and what he has done. A banner, well, a banner is your hope and confidence in life. That's what you think of when you hear the word banner. It's the sustaining principle of your life. It's what you fall back upon when everything else has failed you. And so the question that comes to us from these events is this, friends. What is the banner in your life? What's your banner? Choose very carefully because you will face some very big battles in life. Some people live under the banner that says me or the banner that says self. And their confidence, the thing they fall back on is themselves. And as long as they can do that, they're fine. That that way of living is, is well captured by William Ernest Henley's poem Invictus. Because what does it say? I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And there are billions of people on planet Earth who live by that very principle. But is that banner strong enough to sustain you? Are you able to personally overcome anything? Death? The grave? Eternity? But not just that, friends. There are battles in this life that you and I cannot fight. There are challenges in this life that when you look at them, you quake because you know that they are beyond you. And eventually, I promise you that every one of us will face something that they cannot overcome. You need a strong banner. You need a source of confidence and hope that will never fail you. So what's your banner? Where are you standing? What's your confidence in life and in death? Friends, I put it to you that there is no one and there is nothing that is a sufficient banner than the Lord God Almighty. The only principle that will sustain you in life and in death and into eternity is the Lord is my banner. So is he. And if he is, keep on choosing actively to trust him. You may not be in a spiritual battle right now, but one day you will be. It might be this afternoon, it might be this evening, it might be tomorrow, it might be next week, it might be next year. 
that you will face spiritual battles and you need to get ready. Through prayer and dependence, even when you're under pressure, be ready, trust the Lord. And friends, as we come around the Lord's table, what do we remember? We remember that as we say, the Lord is my banner, we remember this is not just any Lord. This is the Lord who came and saved us. This is the Lord who came and lived among us, lived a perfect life, went to the cross for our sins, rose from the grave so that he might show and declare and give us everlasting and eternal hope that he is our banner. In the book of Isaiah, in chapter 11 and verse 10, we read this. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him. And his resting place will be, do you know the verse? Glorious. Isn't that wonderful, friends? That if the Lord is our banner, he is going to fight for us. What are we to do? We are to rally to him in that spiritual battle because he is the one who has conquered sin and death at the cross. And what is our hope? His resting place will be glorious. Isn't it significant? I don't know if it struck you that at the end of the passage, I have not touched on it until now, but at the end of Exodus 17, there's this way in which the Lord says, I am going to be against at war with the Amalekites forever. And then he says, they are my enemies. He'll be against them from generation to generation. End of verse uh, 16. Now, why is that? Well, it's because he is against the enemies of his people. So the sworn enemies of the Israelites, whom the Amalekites shown themselves to be, The Lord says, I'm against them because they're the enemies of my people. And friends, that reminds us that our Lord Jesus Christ says something similar. He says to each of his people, I am against all of your spiritual enemies. He is opposed to them. And not only that, he has fought for us against our enemies, has he not? Because he went to the cross And there he battled with sin because he bore it. There he battled with Satan because the devil didn't want him to die. That's what the devil was trying to do right from Genesis chapter 3, is to stop the Lord Jesus from coming to die on the cross, but he didn't. And the Lord Jesus Christ was victorious over sin and death and Satan. And so our great hope and the reminder in the supper is that at the cross, Jesus fought for you, Christian. At the cross, Jesus won for you, Christian. He is victorious today. He is coming again to fully and finally bring about that great victory over all of your enemies. And so what is your hope now? Your hope now is that in life and in death, you are not your own. You belong to God. In life and in death, you are secure eternally. Nothing in all creation can separate you from this great God who has done this for you. And so, friends... Will you rally to his banner? Will you come to him? Will you repent of your sin? Will you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Maybe the first time today, will you do it? And if you are there, if you can say, the Lord is my banner, stay there. 
never move. Whatever battles you face. And he will keep you. He will fight for you. Now and for all eternity.